could you do that to me? <laughs> well, at least I will say this, Alan, some things between us never change. <laughs> you are a dear brother, but you and I always seem to step off on the opposite foot when we're marching together. At least we're marching together and praise God for that. Seriously, uh, beloved, it is a great joy to be here. And before we begin, I would like to take care of two or three administrative matters. Those who know me well know I have not only no time sense, <laughs> but in fact, um, an appalling capacity to mess up what little residual time sense might have been there had I been granted any in the first place. So I'm going to ask that somebody for eight sessions will be my timekeeper. And ten minutes before time up, you do this. I can grasp simple signals. <laughs> That, well, yes, we have, we have somebody in the church that has learned to do this. The trouble is, that's not as clear as this. Because, yes, are you going, well, are you willing, you'll do it, you'll take the responsibility, and then at five minutes before. Yes, if you don't, you'll hear about it, right. And then, secondly, I would like to introduce... Joe and Marie Wienendahl and John and Nell Prize, respectively. And if the four of you will please stand up so the other people can see you. Yes. Thank you. And I uh, want to say that uh, both of these families are a great joy to my soul and thrilled that they came down. And I do hope you'll take the time uh, to get to know them, uh, at least some. The third uh, bit of preliminary uh, concern here is that in dealing with this subject uh, that we're looking at, with all of the people here, and given my proclivity to step into the quagmire of offense verbally, and I have promised the board I'm going to try very hard not to do that. I really am going to try, board members. Larry, I believe me, I've been praying about this. <laughs> but if I say something that offends you, please do not march off in high dudgeon and fuss elsewhere. Please tell me, and I will then repent. See, I've learned recently, for years I used the word apologize, but then Jay smote me to the quick. <laughs> on the insipid, watered-down, poor, pathetic misuse of apologize when we should be repenting. And so I will then repent and ask your forgiveness. Unless it's the content and you show me it's unbiblical, I won't repent for that, but anything to do with my, my manner, yes. And then the fourth thing is that I do not mind questions right in the course of the class. And this is not a worship service, although hopefully 
what we address here will, by God's grace, enable us the better to worship God, but uh, I'm certainly willing to uh, entertain questions. And then, in the fifth place, since uh, many of my friends, and then a few that probably wouldn't fall into that category, uh, have told me through the years that I say things that baffle the multitudes <laughs> or use words that are inappropriate by virtue of their length, <laughs> that if you will just please, if you, I say a word that you don't understand, just ask me and I'll gladly explain it. Since I cannot tell by looking at your charming visages what's going on in the thinking department. And so I can't intuit, I can't intuit bafflement. You have to tell me. And so if you don't ask, I will not then take accountability for your failure to understand some wondrously precise but to you obscure word. <laughs> and I think that about covers the... I can't oh, hear you, over there. you can't hear me over there. Oh, all right. Um, and then the last thing is that I ask for your grace. And Roy is walking up, shows you how exquisitely providential every detail in our life is governed by God because I was going to remember something about Roy and then I forgot and then he walked up and that helped me remember. <laughs> and this dear brother uh, in a spasm of ill-timed, if albeit gracious thinking, proceeded at General Assembly to nominate me uh, for the moderator's task, which I hastened to get up and plead with the Assembly not to do on the basis of the fact I didn't know enough names and was convinced I would be in a state of perpetual emotional agony trying to recognize people from the floor when I, my mind went blank on their name. Well, if that happens here, and I say, you know, you in the green shirt or something like that, uh, please don't be offended, just say your name. And after, you know, seven or eight repetitions, it will probably sink in. That's the end. Uh, that's the end of the administrative stuff. So let's pray. Father in heaven, it really is a great joy to get away from the routine of our, our employment and other tasks and to come apart and to spend this time together. I do ask you, O oh God, to give us the grace to spend it in spirit and in truth and to... Uh, commit ourselves here to humbling uh, our minds before your word and to have teachable hearts by your grace. And so make this a time that not only is uh, edifying for us and strengthening for us, but honoring for Jesus Christ. And so I do ask it in his name. Amen. We are going to spend, God sparing us, eight hours together addressing various aspects of our forgotten Christian heritage. And perhaps uh, you got one of those nice little sheets that uh, Steve Butters made up, and then perhaps you didn't. But anyway, uh, 
there are eight topics, and I've made one change. No, that's an administrative matter too, isn't it? I could have said that before. Well, anyway, no sweat. Uh, and that is that I want to reverse the first two topics. That is the heritage of biblical epistemology, epistemology and the heritage of theocentric worship. And the reason that I wanted to reverse them after much pondering, and I'd originally picked worship because I believe that is so central and pivotal for everything else in terms of what we do. But then the reason that I decided to talk about epistemology first, our forgotten epistemological heritage, is because there is so much today that is so problematic for the believing church that goes back to the issue of how we think. And uh, I'd like to say today, first of all, Let's get one thing straight. All of us here have an epistemology, except I think Rachel obviously doesn't, but, but uh, all the rest of us do. And an epistemology means your system of knowledge. That's putting it a little loosely. Uh, epistemology is the science of knowledge. And everybody, by the time they get to adulthood, makes conscious and unconscious decisions, mostly unconscious, about how they're going to decide what they believe. And I think Fran Schaefer had uh, a good point when he pointed out on one occasion that most of us get our epistemology like you catch the measles. You know, you just sort of get it, you don't know where it comes from, and you scratch for a while, and then it's gone, and you can forget about it. And the fact is, though, that you and I, every one of us, have an epistemology for good or for ill that affects every single thing that we believe and every single conclusion we draw and every single decision we make. And I believe it's the, a, a contributing element in personal tragedy when people are blithely ignorant of their own epistemology. And there are different levels of epistemological awareness as well as different quality, if you will, in epistemological thinking. But epistemology could be said to be how we know that what we know is knowable. How do you know that what you know is really knowable? How do you tell a difference between what's true and what's false. And today, in America, most churches that have become theologically corrupt have had as a constituent element of that corruption the erosion of a God-centered epistemology. Now, one other word I'll use here that I suspect you've heard, and that's hermeneutics. That's how you interpret scripture. And the fact is, if your, your hermeneutical thinking is bad, in great measure it will be bad because your epistemology is bad. And so as we begin to look at these different elements of what really, I believe, in large measure has been forgotten, and I suspect uh, sometimes in some measure even within the OPC, that we need to realize that in all of these areas, 
Uh, our particular concepts about how we know what is right is going to affect everything else. Now, if you are uh, a high schooler, and you may be tempted to say, really, Mr. Needham, are you going to dump that on us you know, at 9 o'clock on a Monday morning, or what if this is a Tuesday, yes. No time sense, remember. Uh, that, uh, why do you have to do that? Well, the fact is that by the time you get through high school, you will either be thinking very much like the world, or you will be thinking more and more like citizens of the kingdom. Now, there's, I believe, ample information available for those who are interested in studying something about our history, the history of the United States in general, and the history of churches in the United States in particular. And I would like to propose to you that the vast majority of churches, first of all, have little, if any, resemblance to what happened in the first hundred years of the Reformation. And secondly, I'm going to propose to you that even in the Reformed churches, we have all kinds of contamination in the way we think about issues that are important to God. And that will be part of what we're looking at, as well as what is God's way of changing that for the better. Now, over on the book table, there are a number of books, and one of them is this one, Made in America, by Michael Horton. I just found out about it myself a few weeks ago and read it and kept saying, oh boy, you know, here's, a, here's a great book that gives a very nice summary of so much of the background of what we will be talking about. And I want to read a few uh, quotes for you from that, as well as I want to read some from some other books. Uh, how many of you, by the way, have read this one, The Closing of the American Mind? You know, a few people here have. Uh, excellent book by a man who's not a believer. It's excellent in one sense and tragic in another. It is excellent in terms of giving a very astute overview of how the American academic world has turned its back on truth and inquiry and intellectual honesty and scholarship that is intellectually honest. The tragedy is he offers no substantive solution. As, as a uh, non-theocentric thinker, non-God-centered thinker, he really has no answer to the incredible tragedy of the bankruptcy of academia, the academic world. And then, for the last week, in one of those things that's, I suppose, sort of like a mother mouse desperately tearing up an old pillow for nesting material, I was pawing through the stuff in the attic or the upstairs of the barn up there in Layton, trying to find one copy of a book that panic came into my middle-aged heart when I couldn't find it, because if I lose it, that's, that's a great loss. But I'll have to tell you, but I never did find it. Uh, but it's by uh, Hofstetter. It's called Anti-Intellectualism in American Life. And it's an excellent book. 
on the whole issue of the rejection of objective scholarly thinking uh, in uh, American society. He's not a Christian, but he certainly is an astute viewer of the American intellectual scene. And then one other book that if you want some good reading for your family, uh, if they're older, and especially if you have children going to college and would like to prepare them to be underwhelmed instead of overwhelmed by the propaganda fluff of the secular philosophers that they will meet in Humanities 101 or whatever. It's this book by Paul Johnson. Paul Johnson's an English writer and historian. He is not a Christian. But in my opinion, he exhibits one of those principles that uh, a truth even if not recognized as a truth, still has a benefit when people embrace it or truthfulness. And he's intellectually very honest. And what he's done is take the icons of American intellectual worship, of secular worship, people like Karl Marx, for instance, and has given a devastatingly uh, effective view of their incredible hypocrisy and inconsistency and the phoniness of their particular intellectual systems that have been adopted uncritically by Americans. And if you were to take this book, maybe uh, one, once a week, uh, read through one of the chapters on uh, some of the people that he deals with, uh, that would be a tremendous preparation for your young people uh, when they go off to college in some cynical but superficial pseudo-thinker proceeds to uh, uh, try to challenge them with the supposedly impeccable questions of the secular cynics. And he deals with Rousseau, Shelley, Marx, Ibsen, Tolstoy, Hemingway, Brecht, Bernard, Bertrand Russell, Jean-Paul Sartre, Edmund Wilson, uh, Victor Galantz, uh, Lillian Hellman. Really does a marvelous job of showing their phoniness. Yes, Mark. Published by Harper and Rowe. But I recommend that for the bookshelf of every discerning Christian. Well, what about epistemology, anyway? If you go to university today, it's very fashionable to be a seeker after truth. At least... I would say, it's, I shouldn't say very fashionable. It's not as fashionable as it used to be. I need to correct myself. That shows my age peeking out again. Uh, because uh, nowadays, uh, it's much more important to be a seeker after fulfillment. But for many years on American campuses, uh, if you were a seeker after truth, people would respect you. However, if you said you had found truth, uh, I want to tell you, that their respect would turn to contempt because uh, there's nothing uh, that so much uh, runs against the relativism of American thinking as the idea that there are truths, knowable truths. And I can remember in a philosophy class arguing with a professor who said, I'm absolutely certain there's nothing absolutely certain. And I said, that's an absolute And he didn't like that. 
And he said, if you can't know something absolutely, you can't know it at all. And I said, that's absolutely false. <laughs> and the lie, you see, that has been taught in the universities for so long is that unless you know something absolutely, you can't really know it at all. And the reason that's absolutely false is because we have revelation. And so I can know that what God says is absolutely true, even though I can't absolutely understand all of the absolutes about an absolute God. And I can rejoice that what I do know about his absolutes are absolutely true, even if I don't know them absolutely. That's very, very important. And so you and I do not have to be timid. We don't have to be intellectually or spiritually or socially timid when we meet with people who have uh, hostility toward the idea of a knowable God or knowable truth. But if you think that that's not, not uh, a serious uh, problem, I, I want to encourage you to appreciate how the church has been suckered and seduced in the last hundred years especially to embrace catastrophically unbiblical ideas out of fear of appearing unintellectual or anti-intellectual or not with it. And I believe personally the worst of those adulterous relationships with prostituted ideas is the notion of theistic evolution. And I say that uh, as one who had the privilege of having four years uh, as a pre-med student before I went off to seminary, uh, convinced God had not merely not called me to be a doctor, but promised me woe and grief if I did. Uh, <laughs> but the fact is that we can find a number of areas in which the church today has embraced, I believe, by and large uncritically, notions that upon careful assessment can be demonstrated to be manifestly contrary to the Word of God. And I don't know if any of you went to the June Institutes. Uh, I sat there uh, blessed in listening to the uh, speakers uh, give what I thought were very fine on the whole, uh, very fine expositions in various areas about thinking that today has been put together with some of the world and tidbits of scripture and we get an eclectic mishmash. And so uh, the June Institute, which just finished recently, uh, was on the subject of righteousness versus recovery. And one of the areas where, there, you know, there may be somebody here, and I'm not here to condemn you, but I am here to say I hope as kindly as I can. I do not believe it can be demonstrated with a shard of, of biblical carefulness that the 12-step recovery method is consistent with Scripture. You just can't do it. Uh, it's a little bit like trying to demonstrate that a gorilla is indistinguishable from a swan. You know, you've got to have a few analytical screws loose uh, if you try. And so the fact is that we in the church, I believe, need to be people who are not afraid to think carefully. Now, in worship, and in the next hour I'll be touching on this, but I need to say at least this much, that today the fad in worship is entertainment and self-fulfillment. Entertainment and self-fulfillment. And 
the idea that worship should center in the proclamation of the assimilation of the agreement with and the rejoicing in propositional truth is about like suggesting to most Americans uh, that they uh, should go off and live in mud huts in Zaire. That just wouldn't appeal. And the fact is that right now, even in the Reformed churches, we have in various degrees embraced this idea of entertainment. And uh, I think you know that there are churches that now have drama as part of the worship service. Now that is just plain entertainment. That's a crass capitulation to the entertainment lust of Americans who tend to evaluate the validity or the lack thereof of something on the basis of its funness or its fun quotient. And some of you have heard me say this before, but when our eldest daughter was in those appalling stages that we call the teenage years, uh, in which they take departure from the human race and somewhere miraculously return to it, uh, that the epistemological debate that uh, Bethel and I had over and over again is that anything that was ever suggested, her, her immediate and upfront primary test was, well, that isn't fun. And I would say, Bethel, I am not against fun. That was my lead-in. <laughs> and then I would say, but there are other issues in this world and fun cannot be the definitive test of what you accept or reject. And we would go round and round on that, and it took her a mere four years or so, to, to assimilate the idea that fun cannot be the criteria by which we decide what we accept or reject or agree with or disagree and so, beloved, this is a call to something extremely un-American. It is a call to not think in uh, ten-second bites. It is a call to not interrupt our thinking with emotional commercials. This is a call that we're going to be looking at from God to worship Him in a way that centers in this commodity called truth. And when Jesus was talking to a woman who represented a society that had majored in the business of syncretistic worship, that's worship where you put it all together with bits and pieces from different sources, and that was the Samaritan woman, he said to her, the Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth, and I'd like to read that uh, because it's so profound in the way Jesus Christ dealt with her uh, as she uh, said to him, uh, well, you know, I worship, we worship, we Samaritans worship, uh, after she's figured out that he's a prophet. In verse 20, she says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. That's what you people say. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. 
You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know. Interesting use of the verb, to know. You see, the verb that has to do with knowledge. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. John. Thank you. I forgot that trifling detail. John chapter 4, verses 21 through 24. Thank you. I appreciate that, John. John chapter 4, Gospel of John, verses 21 through 24. Now notice that not once but twice he says what our worship is to consist of, if you will, or what is to be the nexus of the worship that we bring. Verse 23, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You see that word truth there is a marvelous word. That is not referring to an amorphous collection of individual opinions. That is referring to the truth of God's word. And so if you and I don't have a firm grasp on what truth is, I submit it's impossible to worship God or for that matter do anything else before God that will please him. A couple of other introductory clues by way of setting the background of the problem. About two or three years ago, I went to the last uh, chaplain corps annual chaplain training seminar that I was able to stomach. And in that particular training course, which that year uh, we would spend a week, or well, actually four days, uh, immersed uh, in all sorts of experiential and conceptual garbage. And we were told that particular year that the way that worship was to be conducted, and they brought in some pretty high-powered speakers, they were called um, uh, subject matter experts. And they abbreviated that. They abbreviate everything in the military. Uh, it, was, it was abbreviated to SME, S-M-E. I thought SME has such onomatopoetic, you know, uh, yuckiness. SME. It sort of sounds like, you know, like saying snot or something. Like that. But anyway, that's just my personal... Uh, but anyway, they brought in these SMEs that you help pay for with your tax money to, to uh, teach the chaplains how to conduct worship. And remember, this is now for chaplains from every species and color of denomination and background that the United States can 
uh, cough up in the, uh, you know, in that umbrella of what our past is legitimate denomination. And this was the heart of it, that worship is to, first of all, be established by determining, by determining the FNs. If you want to be politically correct in ecclesiastical circles for which the truth of God is an uninteresting irritant on the path of experiential life, just talk about felt needs. Felt needs. And we were instructed on how to design questionnaires to give to everybody on the ship or station in order to discover what their felt needs needs were. And then on the basis of your computer-assisted assessment of the felt needs, you were to design worship experiences that would fulfill their felt needs. And at the end of this great orgy of emotionalism and pseudo-thinking, we had a felt-need worship service, which I agonized about whether to participate in at all, and I decided I couldn't do that, but then I wasn't going to be there at all, but then I thought, no, I've got to play this out and see what kind of intellectual effluvia will come out of this, this sewer. And so uh, a worship service was designed and in that worship service, there were circles of concentric chairs. And in the first chair was the woman rabbi, which we termed the rabbinette. <laughs> she was also a smee. And and she placed around her, and I won't say close proximity, I'll just say close. She placed close to her the female chaplains and a couple of the uh, most odious male syncophants <laughs> that were salivating at the altar of feminism. And then in progressively larger circles around this epicenter of odium, were those who were more liberal nearest the center and then the less liberal and then there were a few of us <laughs> that weren't in any circle. And we watched this. And the liturgy, which I have saved, the felt-need-designed liturgy, was a liturgy that addressed Mother God Yes, that's right, your tax dollars helped pay for that felt-need worship service. And then we had a liturgy that reviewed the accomplishments of biblical feminists. That's interpretive. And then as the climax of this felt-need worship experience, 
the rabbinette picked up one of those carved things that if you go to the Philippines, you buy. And everybody that goes to the Philippines buys one of these carved things, unless you are really out of it. Now it may be a name plaque, and they're all the same. You can spot them anywhere in the Navy and the Marine Corps or the Air Force. You can tell somebody's been to the Philippines. You just go in their office, and there's that carved name plaque, and you know they've been to the Philippines. <laughs> and, uh, and it's always carved out of monkey pot wood. That's important. And then uh, she lifted up this plaque of the chaplain corps, and picking it up reverently in the matter, manner of a druidic priestess, proceeded to do a 360-degree rotation while she intoned this, this message. This, O chaplains, is what unites you. And then she picked up something else, which I confess to this day I cannot remember. My mind has completely blocked it out, and I cannot retrieve it. I've been trying for three years. And then the third thing she did is had one of the women chaplains hold a bowl of water. And she went over to that bowl of water and dramatically dipped her hands into the bowl of water. And then raising her hands after the manner of a druidic priestess, she said, this represents and the water, of course, is cascading off her fingers. All very dramatic. This represents the water of the womb. <laughs> and several at the back said, no fooling. <laughs> and she said, this is the womb of water that brought you into being. I'd always thought it was God. But some of us are that backward. And that dreadful hypocrisy and mockery ended with a call to reverently appreciate for the rest of our life the womb water worship that we ought to be rendering. I didn't want to ask whose womb. <laughs> I suppose it wouldn't have mattered anyway. Now, that you may think I have exaggerated. I have not. And you see, when we have the privilege of living in a very God-blessed environment, such as we really do enjoy, praise be to God, in the churches of the Orthodox Presbyterian Communion, for all as I may use uh, George Maladin's phrase, exquisite phrase, for all our warts and blemishes. I like that. That's so honest. The fact is, it's easy to be unaware of how serious the problem is in America as we have turned away from a God-centered way of thinking to a man-centered way of thinking. Now, one other thing I need to tell you by way of background is this. I trust you are aware that there are basically two fundamental ways in which we get truth, deductively and inductively. 
deductively and inductively. Before the Middle Ages, with the exception of the early Greeks, by and large, inductive thinking didn't have a whole lot of place in the pantheon of thought in the Western world. Inductive thinking is, of course, what we now call often the scientific method, where you examine specific instances of something, and then on the basis of what you've examined in this collection or, or if you will, a mini-universe of data bits, you then try to construct an hypothesis, and you then test your hypothesis, and if the hypothesis cannot be found to have any irrefutable contradictions, you can elevate it to a theory. And then as you continue to apply those tests, eventually, if you amass enough inductive data that's from observation, you can finally say you have a fact. Now, deductive truth is quite different. Deductive truth means you start out with propositions. You start out with ideas. And whether we like it or not in America, the fact is you can't be a biblical thinker, you can't even be an honest thinker if you aren't willing to think deductively as well as inductively. And many of the starting points with deductive thinking are ideas we cannot prove in a laboratory. You can't do it. Now, there are ways that we can decide if a deductive idea is true. There are good, effective ways that we can decide that. But the fact is that in matters relating to truth about God or truth about man, it is impossible to understand either without deductive truth. I believe that modern sociology is an example of a pseudoscience that has tried to understand man only on an inductive basis. And that modern sociological thinking reached a crisis several decades ago in which it was generally realized that men could not be regularized according to some analytical scheme, such as the way you can, to some extent, uh, regularize your uh, nomenclature for the various species of plants and animals. And so the sociologists realizing that they had failed to be able to figure out, if I could put it in kind of homey language, to figure out what make man, makes man tick the way he does. The problem of unpredictability, the problem that there's so much about man that can't simply be tidily explained with some kind of, of, a, of a technique, has moved, interestingly enough, to the idea that since man isn't 
isn't amenable to assessment in situ, like you're observing a plant in situ biologically. Isn't that right, Larry? Yeah. You look at the plant where it is, as well as bringing it in the lab. So. That the way that society can finally be brought to heal is to make controlling systems so powerful politically and otherwise that people will do exactly as they're ordered to by the ruling elite. Now that's the nexus of the revolution in sociology, unadmitted though it may be by many who are sincere and often Christians like to go into sociology, but that's really the heart of the revolution that's taken place. And the reason that they've reached that place of intellectual despair is because they can't see any unifying principle to explain the behavior of man, much less to help man overcome such things as poverty and war and bad environmental behavior. So here we are then in a society that is technologically brilliant, technologically brilliant, morally bankrupt, spiritually blind. We are a nation of technological giants, moral dwarfs, and spiritual midgets. And furthermore, most of the church, I believe, are part of the disaster. And if you read what Porton says, he believes, and I think correctly, that we in the church scene in America, from the time before the revolution, began to contribute those concepts and ideas which actually helped humanism accelerate the disaster. And so what's going to be then for us if this is not something to titillate our intellects, walk away, back to business as usual? Well, first of all, you've got to be willing to think. And that isn't easy. And I would like to take as a beginning text now as we start looking at what the scripture says about thinking. In a sense, we could say we need to be thinking about thinking. I'd like to take you, first of all, to Ecclesiastes 1. And let's start honestly. You know the, that there's a lot of good news, bad news jokes around? I'm sure you've heard them. Well, this isn't a joke, but it's a good news, bad news thing. And I'm going to give you the bad news first, because then there's all kinds of good news afterwards. But... I want to be honest about the bad news. Ecclesiastes 1. Chapter 1, that is. Solomon is here reflecting on what was a period of his life in which he went experientially mad. Uh, but he was you know, centuries before his time. Today, one of the philosophies is, don't knock it if you hadn't tried it. Well, he tried it. He tried about everything known to the mind of man. And then, 
Though he was the wisest man that ever lived, he nevertheless took a long time to come to some basic realizations. And I must confess, I think his wisdom was narrow because I am firmly convinced that anybody that thinks he can manage 1,500 women is insane. (laughs) As well as not very wise. But look what he says in verses 17 and 18. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. That's honest, isn't it? I realized also that this also is striving after wind. And then look at verse 18, beloved. Because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Now let me tie that together with one other uncritically accepted notion in America today, beloved, and that's the notion that we shouldn't have to suffer, that we shouldn't have to be the recipients of pain. And I don't have to tell you if you watch that marvelous technological thing that I like to call the boob tube, the television. And if you look at any of the odious offerings of the electronic church, a theme you hear over and over again is God never intended you to suffer. It's not the intent of God that you should ever have to endure trial and hardship and pain. And yet I find the Bible says that over and over and over. In fact, just two days ago, I was involved in a hospital in a discussion with somebody who wanted to know, why is there pain? Why is there suffering? If God is so good, why is my relative here suffering? We got into the whole thing right at, <laughs> right at the side. It's metal, I guess. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, I'll try not to pound it again. I guess I'm blushing too. <laughs> <laughs> but we got into the whole thing about pain. It embarrassed me so badly, Dr. Garrisy, I forgot what it was. <laughs> that, that what I would say, I can give you the, the sense of, of where I was going, is the fact that this individual was convinced that we should never, if we're Christians, have to suffer pain or see our loved ones suffer pain or suffering. Uh, trial, tribulation, uh, endure that. And the fact is that the Word of God is very, very uh, explicit. Uh, second, uh, First Peter, nearly the whole epistle has to do with this subject. Uh, Hebrews 12. This is a given. Uh, if we are indeed the adopted children of the living God, He's going to scourge us. You know what that word scourge means? It means to whip with a cat of nine tails. And that's a mark of his love. And that certainly doesn't fit the American schema that if you really are in God's will, you should never, never, never have to suffer. And so, beloved, I think Solomon is telling us something under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That first of all, there's a very real sense in the more you know, the more you see the misery. True or false? Let's push it a step further. The more you know the more you will see the underlying spiritual and conceptual rot at the heart of a dying society. The more you know about God's truth, especially if it's wisdom with His truth, the more you will understand how insidious is the seduction 
of even our children and sometimes some who aren't so young with ideas that are corrosive to living in a mature and effectual way for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what, I've got about two or three minutes? Five. Let me run at this uh, other thought here on the subject. I want to raise a warning flag on the subject of reactive thinking. I think I'm a slow learner, I really do, and it took me years to begin to appreciate just how deadly this is. Uh, and I could, if we had time unlimited, I'd like to have a little fun with the Newtonian physics that for every action there's an opposite, an equal reaction type of stuff. And maybe that's a cosmological reflection of this truth and da, 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 that sort of stuff. But I don't have time for that. But anyway, I do believe very much that whenever you and I make a decision either to do or not do something on the basis of something we're responding against, that what we end up with will be as bad as what we objected to. For the simple reason that, first of all, that isn't deductive thinking from pre-existent propositional truth. It's reactive and experiential. And the degree to get which our emotions get involved is the degree to which I believe we lose our capacity to think righteously. Now, I've learned that through the years that when people hear my name in various parts of the country say, Oh, Bob Needham, he's the guy that's against emotions. <laughs> no, I'm not against emotions. No. But I want to tell you, I am absolutely against making decisions or coming to conclusions or drawing assessments on the basis of emotional response when those activities should be on the basis of propositional truth. If you'll turn with me, I got what, two minutes? About two minutes. Second Corinthians chapter 10. For years, I have appreciated this text as a text that could be applied to the problem of comparing ourselves with each other. And Paul was dealing with this in a context I haven't got time to get into now, but 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. And the other day I walked into the class that uh, my brother Andrew, Andy Peterson was teaching, and I just walked in when he was citing this, and I've looked at this text for years, I've used it in counseling for years, to try to warn people about the problem of making decisions about your life on the basis of looking horizontally at somebody else. And I believe that's a very, very proper application. But Andy was talking about psychological testing, and, the, and Andy, you correct me either now or after, but I believe the horribly inadequate database from which it's psychological tests are used, and then these norms are established by which you say dreadful things about people's lives. 
And the thing that I hadn't realized, and it just hit me like a thousand bricks falling on my pointy head, was the fact that that applies to corporate horizontal measurement as surely as individual horizontal measurement. In other words, if I look at another denomination or a group of people and draw life-changing conclusions on the basis of that, that's as evil as when individuals do it. And the fact is God wants us to identify the principles that apply and then out of those principles to draw godly, responsible applications to keep us from reactive things. I'll finish with this. How many of you have known, or maybe you've done it yourself, your parents did something and you made a decision, maybe when you were a teenager, I'm never going to do that. <laughs> well, first of all, it's very dangerous because God usually rubs our noses in it. We do end up doing just that. Especially if we've announced to more than one other person <laughs> that we won't. But secondly, when you think about it, what we end up trying to do in reaction is as bad as what we objected to. And so the ones who say, well, my parents disciplined, disciplined me. I'm not going to discipline my children. Then they end up with children raised permissively. They're little brats instead of cowed children lacking in good self-image. That was sarcastic. And, <laughs> and so then the next generation says, I'm not going to do that. And they swing wildly to the other extreme and beat the tar out of their children and, you know, back and forth. Okay, time's up. All right, when are we supposed to reconvene? 11 o'clock. Yes, sir. I dutifully terminate. We'll end with prayer at the second session. We're terminating. <laughs>